Thinking in Dark Times is a podcast series by Ukraine World. In this episode, I speak to Gillian Tatt, who is a British journalist and author. She is chair of the editorial board and U.S. editor-at-large of the Financial Times. She is the author of books Fool's Gold, The Silo Effect, and Athrovision, A New Way to See in Business and Life. My name is Volodymyr Yermolenko, I'm a Ukrainian philosopher and journalist, chief editor of Ukraine World. In this episode, I speak to Gillian Tad about how anthropology can help us understand the world, what the West has gotten wrong about Ukraine in the past, and how Russian imperialism is different from the Western imperialisms. Ukraine World is a website in English about Ukraine. It is brought to you by Internews Ukraine, one of the largest Ukrainian media NGOs. You can support us at patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can also support our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Gillian Tat, welcome to this podcast. I'm delighted to be taking part of it, um, albeit from the other side of the world, sitting in New York. Thank you. Thank you so much. So let me start with your background, because um, I'm very interested in, in your anthropological background, and you're well known for trying to uh, to use anthropology and, and study lots of other fields. As far as I understand, you your career started in, uh, your research career started in Tajikistan, uh, where you went to do um, anthropology research. Uh, it was at the, at the last days of the Soviet Union, the late 80s. What did you learn from your experience there, and how does this experience help you to understand what is going on right now in Eastern Europe? Well, thank you very much indeed, and it's an honor to be on the show talking with you. Um, I did indeed start as a cultural anthropologist, I did my PhD in anthropology at Cambridge University in the UK, but it was in the last few years of the Soviet Union, the time of Perestroika and Glasnost, and so I actually was part of an exchange program which enrolled me in the Soviet Academy of Sciences, and after some time in Moscow, I went down to the Dushanbe State University to be enrolled in a PhD program there and I worked with local academics there doing my research. What I was looking at um, officially at the time was the question of wedding rituals in Tajikistan and how they had maintained traditional culture through those wedding rituals. But what I was really looking at at the time was the relationship between Islam and communism and how ordinary Tajiks navigated what it meant to be both Soviet and Tajik. And it was fascinating because one of the first principles of anthropology is that you can never assume that the rest of the world thinks about the world in the same way as you do. Um, you need to recognize that other people might have a completely different lens. And even though it's human nature to assume that everyone should think like you do, you need to respectfully try to think yourself into someone else's mind. And secondly, um, anthropologists believe very strongly in the bottom-up, ground-level view, the worm's-eye view, if you like, not just the top-down view, um, the bird's-eye view. And one of the main things I learned um, from my time in Tajikistan in 89, 1991, was that 
the assumptions that the West had about what was happening on the ground in Tajikistan were completely wrong. Um, essentially, before I went, there was a strong assumption in America that Islam and communism were ideologically incompatible. And so the most likely place that there was going to be a revolution against the Soviet Union and Moscow would come from the Muslim areas in the South. In fact, the CIA, which had a lot of impact and influence on Central Asian studies in the West, the CIA used to talk about these, quotes soft underbelly of the Central Asian region, because they assumed after Afghanistan that that would be the area that would actually rise up and have a rebellion first. So I went down there with that assumption in my mind and very quickly realized that it was actually completely wrong because on the ground, there was a pattern of accommodation in the villages I lived in, whereby the villagers had managed to sort of live with both being Soviet and um, Soviet and also being Tajik Muslim because they divided up their space and they divided up gender roles. And it's a long conversation, so I won't go into the details of that. But I came back from my research saying, actually, the worm's eye view suggests that the way the West looks at Soviet, Soviet Central Asia is wrong. And it turned out that actually my research was quite correct because um, when the Soviet Union did finally break up, the rebellion didn't happen in the Muslim Tajik areas. In fact, they were the last place to break away from Moscow. Instead, the rebellion started in places like the Baltic Republics um, for reasons that I can go into. But it was a very, very important lesson in the simple principle that culture matters. And culture matters enormously if you're trying to predict what is going to happen in politics um, or in the current situation in a war. That's very interesting because it leads us to a question about modernity and tradition, how the uh, the moderni- modernizing ideologies like communism were actually, uh, sometimes they were opposing to religious traditions, but sometimes they were using religious traditions. And I'm very interested how you e- explain it, for example, because when we look at, at, at countries, so some, some countries like in the Caucasus, when we look at Georgia, for example, we see that uh, the, the orthodoxy, the orthodox church, which actually could have, you know, promote the Georgian identity against the Russian uh, identity, Russian political identity, uh, actually do, does the opposite. It it cultivates these anti-Western, anti-liberal sentiments and rather realigns Georgia with uh, authoritarian Russia. So how can you explain this accommodation between Islam and communism? Was it, was it about this vertical rule? Was it about authoritarian rule? Or was it about just combining two worldviews which are which are just combined practically? Well, it was very interesting in Central Asia what had happened. And it has a lot of implications for elsewhere. Because, you know, in theory, if you look at the ideologies behind Islam or the rhetoric, intellectual framework of Islam and communism, they are very diametrically opposed. And there were periods of time in the history of Soviet Central Asia when the the Communist Party was very determined to destroy Islam and Islamic practices. So in the 20s and 30s, um, there was what was called the Khujum, which was the mass campaign to try and free Islamic women by 
forcibly unveiling them and forcing them to go to work and things like that. Um, those campaigns largely backfired. And what ended up happening in Soviet Central Asia, certainly in the areas where I was living, was a practice of almost accommodation where the public space was deemed to be very Soviet and communist, and that was mostly the male space. But the private domestic space was seen to be more traditional, and that was often regarded as being more associated with Islamic values and traditions and practices, and that tended to be regarded as the female space. And that distinction between different spaces, um, compartmentalization, reflected a really long-standing tradition in Central Asian history where you did compartmentalize between public and private space. And people in the communities that I was living in didn't see any issue with having different displays and practices and even sort of frameworks of thought in public space and private space. So in public, the men in the village I lived in would be Soviet communist, um, and they would talk like that um, and dress like that often. But in private, when they went home, they expected their wives to be still being Muslim and Tajik and upholding the Muslim Tajik identity. So there was a real pattern of compartmentalization. Now, what I find fascinating is that was pretty well ingrained within the um, area that I was doing my research in as an anthropologist. But if you look to parts of Europe where one of the aspects that's been introduced with modernity is an idea that the individual should basically stand before God or deity or whatever religion they're in, um, in a one-on-one -on -one relationship without layers and layers of hierarchy. And there's also this idea that actually people should try to be consistent in their public and private life, and that it's wrong to be essentially compartmentalizing, to be lying in public or saying one thing in public and then doing something completely different in private. That's regarded as something which is wrong within the modernity tradition of you know, Western Europe. Um, it's perhaps in that context no surprise that there was more of an overt tension, um, certainly in terms of the religious groups um, in parts of the Baltic republics and places like that. So if you look at what's been happening in places like Georgia, you know, one of the questions you need to ask is, is there a compartmentalization of everyday life culturally? And does that help explain what's going on? And then a second question is, to what degree does an individual feel that they should be having a direct relationship with God as part of their religion? Or should it be going through some kind of hierarchical institution and pattern like a church? And perhaps most crucially, to what degree is there so much respect for the vertical hierarchies of authority that individuals basically um, let the hierarchy decide how to navigate these issues? They kind of leave their brain at the front door of a church and just go in and do whatever they're told? Or to what degree is a religion promoting an idea of an individual having free will and working within a flat structure of hierarchies and having individual responsibility for what they do? Because when a society is full of people who feel that they should have individual responsibility for navigating moral choices, and that those moral choices have to be consistent across society, you have a very different dynamic happening from the pattern that I saw in Tajikistan or elsewhere. 
Right. And uh, I think what is important also is that in the 80s, communism was uh, absolutely different than it was in the Soviet Union, than it was late in 1950s. It was a time, post-Brezhnev's time already, even post-Perestroika time, where communism was rather cynical. So it was accepting the multiple ways of life. It was accepting uh, clandestine religion. It was accepting a certain plurality uh, it was it was not really believe, it was relativizing the communist truth so it's it's indeed very interesting about not only about the space where you've been but also about the time let me ask you as as anthropologist and journalist about ukraine actually and about and, and also about russia so the anthropology helps us to overcome the the certain subjectivity of our worldview, not not totally, of course, but at least to 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 move beyond the boundaries of the of the way how we see the world. Um, what do you think the people like who are sitting in maybe in London, in Paris, in Berlin, in New York, in Washington, and never been to Ukraine or to Russia did? Uh, what they got wrong about this war? What they didn't understand, and what they need? to understand when they come uh, on the ground? I think that people need to understand two or three things. Firstly, that although Ukrainian culture and Russian culture might look similar from the outside, um, you know, in fact, there have been some very interesting trajectories in the last few decades, which mean that for me as an outsider, speaking with a humility that I'm not Ukrainian or Russian, so Many people may think I'm wrong, but with all those caveats, I think that there have been some very interesting divergences, um, which are worth stressing because one of the big mistakes that people make when they talk about culture is to imagine a country's culture or a community's culture as being a bit like a Tupperware plastic box in the sense of this is Ukrainian culture. It's a box. It's fixed and sealed. Nothing changes. It's bounded closed and often there is an assumption that if you imagine different national cultures like Tupperware boxes that you can stack them on top of each other in a hierarchy of values and inevitably everyone thinks that my own culture should be top. In reality culture is more like a slow moving river in the sense that a community's culture never has click up boundaries, it's got muddy river banks that constantly change and get washed away there are new streams coming in, water flowing out, constantly moving a little bit and changing. And to me, one of the most important things about the Ukraine or the Ukrainian area in the last three decades, um, you know, Ukraine as a nation, is that back in 1991, after the Soviet period, both Russia and Ukraine came from a long history in the Soviet period of individuals assuming that they had very little agency, very little ability to control events. And the vertical hierarchical institutions were completely dominant. And in Russia, there was some flowering of civil society and individuals began to get a sense of agency. But tragically, that has been largely crushed in recent years by Vladimir Putin and the hierarchies around the Kremlin. And if you look at how, say, 
the Russian army is operating today is a very hierarchical model where orders go down from the top and information is supposed to go up from the bottom. But each silo, each department is run on a hierarchical basis and there's not a lot of lateral links and a lot, a lot of sense of self-organization and self-responsibility. Um, instead, there's a real mood of fatalism and passivity. And people in Russia, my Russian friends, talk about this idea that politics is something which is done to you. It happens, you know, the roof blows off. It happens above you, above your heads, and there's nothing you can do. There's passivity. Um, the only thing that people in Russia can do, my Russian friends tell me, to express their agency right now is just leave, which is tragic. And I dare say some Russian friends of mine might disagree with that, but that's my impression. In Ukraine, by contrast, having watched the country for many years, it seems that there's been an explosion of agency. Um, people have begun to really believe that actually, not only do they have the ability to change things around them and to take responsibility for some of their lives and to self-organize themselves, but they believe they actually should do that. And they should try to use lateral networks, not, not hierarchical um, institutions, but use lateral networks to get things done, that their voice is important and should be heard, and that they can, as individuals, do all kinds of things to change the world, to try and change history. They're not passive, it's active. And what's happened in the Ukraine um, defense against the Russian invasion has intensified that sense of agency um, and that sense of lateral networks which of course have been further reinforced by digital platforms and digital technology in quite a remarkable way. So there's really quite interesting different cultural trajectories happening right now, which I don't think Westerners understand properly. And they should, because one of the ways that Ukraine can present its case to the West to get more support is to tell a country like America, if you believe in individual self-responsibility, in agency, in an ability of self-organization at the grassroots to really matter. If you believe in democracy, then Ukraine is a place which is embracing these values, hasn't always done so in the past, but is now, and therefore in many ways is a beacon for them across the Western world at the moment. Yes, I think I, I totally agree with you. And I think this is one of the ways to describe what is happening. I think the maxim of a Ukrainian citizen today is who, if not myself, whom if, who, if not me. Uh, so th this is a very increased uh, feeling of responsibility. Of course, we are not talking about all the citizens. There are many citizens in Ukraine as well who are passive and who are waiting for something to be done on them. Where else in the authoritarian societies, which uh, actually uh, uh, deprives its citizens of agency, the maxim is rather somebody else but me. Somebody else will do that. Somebody else will decide. And this is what we unfortunately see in the Russian society, at least from those media reports that I follow. But uh, let me ask uh, you, you, like we are talking about, I think one of the things that, that the, the, the West uh, didn't understand properly is that Russia is an empire and uh, it's it's actually not a very different empire from uh, from uh, the European countries or 
who who were empires in the 19th and 20th century and early in the 18th century. And when we, when we've met with you in Kiev at Yalta European Strategy Forum, I was trying to explain the difference between maritime empires and uh, Russia as a continental empire, saying that in the maritime empires, the notion of difference was the notion of a domination, and therefore the colonizer was saying to the colonized that you will never become the same as myself. Whereas in the Russian Empire uh, and in the Soviet Empire, the maxim was different, totally different. The idea of major idea of domination was the idea of sameness, and uh, the empire was telling to the colonized people that you will not be able to become different than myself. You you will have to become the same. And I think what you describe in Tajikistan it all is also kind of accommodates with, with this idea because yeah it was it was told that you can become you can be uh, you can remain Muslim at your home, but in the public space you should be communist. What do you think about this idea? Well I think you make a truly brilliant point and I've got a couple of observations on this. Firstly, that when the Soviet um, communists went into places like Tajikistan, they absolutely had the goal of cultural change. Um, and if you like, um, you know, an attempt to make Tajikistan more like Russia. And there was a phrase in the communists who were sent in there in the 30s, um, which was shaking the nail. And shaking the nail referred to their perception that women and traditional Islamic female roles were the nail that held together the entire cultural edifice of Soviet Central Asia, or rather traditional Central Asia, pre-Soviet Central Asia. And if they could just liberate the women, then the rest of the cultural edifice would collapse. And out of that rubble, they could build essentially a Soviet society in Central Asia, which was very similar to Russian society. Um, and so they targeted women in particular um, for the Khojov campaign to try and liberate them, to send them to school, to change the marriage laws, to rip off the veils, etc., etc. And it didn't work initially, although it ended up having really quite a significant impact by the 1980s when I got there, um, and in many ways actually echoed what later generations of Western development groups or the World Bank was trying to do, although nobody in the West ever admitted that. Um, but the crucial thing was that the Russian communists were indeed trying to change Tajik society um, with a very imperialistic lens and very much trying to bring them more into their fold, make them more similar. Uh, one of the other issues, apart from being maritime or land empires, which influenced that, um, was the sense of confidence that existed in the Russian Empire versus the British Empire. And this really goes back to the pre-Soviet times, because when the British Empire was formed and people went into India, they had an overwhelming sense of their own superiority. And not only did they not expect the Indians to become exactly like them, but they kind of assumed that they were automatically, biologically and ethnically and you know, historically and economically just so superior that at times they actually had the luxury of being, if you like, generous towards the people who they'd conquered. And I put generous in, you know, in quotation marks because I'm slightly being sarcastic here. But they had the luxury of self-confidence to be generous towards people in their empire sometimes, not always, but sometimes. 
One of the key things about the Russian Empire was that there are such strong folk memories within Russian history of the Mongol invasion and memories of groups coming in from the east and trampling on the Russian communities and Russians ending up as slaves in you know, the Central Asian towns like Bukhara um, until really you know, the early 19th century. Those memories kind of rippled through and left a sense of profound insecurity towards, you know, essentially, you know, the Eastern groups, Muslim cultures, etc., etc. So I think that in addition to the difference between maritime and land empires, the sense of insecurity in Russia, oddly enough, added to the brutality and authoritarianism and the desire to subjugate the other because of fear that if Russia didn't subjugate, subjugate the other, then it itself would be wiped out. And it's fascinating because if you watch, as I do, um, the horror of Russian state TV um, over the last year, and I've watched a lot of it, you know, the element of, or the sense of insecurity that runs through a lot of the conversations um, on things like Vichyar and things like that is really very striking. And this feeling that if they don't be ultra aggressive, they're going to get wiped out immediately. Um, that is absolutely ridiculous, obviously. You know, Russia is not fighting for an existential survival. Nobody has been threatening Russia. And it's, it is absolutely crazy if you watch it. And yet, I think it does reflect this bigger insecurity, which has rippled through the imperialism of Russia for a very, very long time. I think that the, the sources of this feeling of insecurity is not actually the state, but uh, each particular citizen, but because each particular citizen feels very insecure. Each particular citizen feels that he or she is subject to violence and therefore, yes. and therefore he or she is not protected and therefore the only the only way uh, or, or in your life is either to project violence on others so if you if you suffer from violence you can at least export violence on others or identify yourself with something that that will protect you and uh, this is very interesting how this feeling of individual non-protection actually rules this but you you've made a very I would interesting say, I would say yeah. I would agree with that very strongly and I'd say that, you know, tragically, you know, Russia seems to me to be a bit like a sort of, you know, um, abusive family or in a state of abusive relationship where, you know, everyone is subject to violence, so everyone lashes out against everyone else. And one of the absolute tragedies, one of the things that makes my blood boil and makes me so sad and upset is that this has been meted out, not just the Russian citizens and created this poisonous culture, but to some of the you know, non-ethnic Russians living within the Russian polity, um, like the Buryat. Um, you know, I spent a lot of time when I was an anthropologist looking at Buryat culture, Buryat and Tuva. And, you know, this is a place with a Buddhist tradition, um, you know, very poor communities. They have absolutely no reason to go out and kill Ukrainians. I mean, you know, there's absolutely no upside for them to do that. Um, no reason to, um, and yet so poisonous and so utterly perverted has this horrific imperial structure been over the decades. So pernicious has been this culture of fear and the bullying, and the Buryat themselves have so often been bullied that it sort of sparked this awful behaviour at times, 
um, and cause them to be in the army. Um, there are people today in Boliatia, thank heavens, who are saying no and trying to campaign desperately to not nearly, not only stop their people going into the Russian army and you know doing going to Ukraine, but also there's a new campaign emerging in places like Boliatia to try to have more independence and distance from Moscow. And to say, actually, we're Buryat, we're not Rusiania, never mind Ruski, we're, you know, we're Buryat. Um, and I suspect we may see that accelerate um, if the Russian, you know, if Russian army begins to lose more in Ukraine. Um, but imperialism in this authoritarian way has been utterly, utterly poisonous in so many ways across the region. And I just hope and pray that just as the British Empire shriveled, other empires are shriveled. Boy, do I hope the Russian Empire will be the next one that basically shrivels and disappears. Yes, I, I also, of course, we all do hope. And I, I think that the concept of dignity is very important. Therefore, this Ukrainian revolution was taking this name because uh, I think dignity is actually a, a right of a person to be n- not to be humiliated. So a, a kind of a protection against humiliation. Humiliation as as a process of uh, throwing you off your place, which you that you actually occupy. And uh, if you look at the history of Russian imperialism, one of the important factors is also that uh, well, we understand that in in the European empires, in the European monarchies, a very important moment was the idea of rights, which was actually, of course, very much limited to a certain number of people. In the feudal times, it was about aristocracy, both in Britain and then in France. And then when the French absolutism tried to uh, destroy the, the barons' rights, it didn't, didn't succeed. Whereas in Russia, uh, this idea of rights, even among the aristocracy, never was enrooted. And therefore, when one French a philosopher in the 19th century, Astolfe de Custine, was describing Russia. He was saying that, look, even the topest aristocrat in Russia compared to the Tsar is actually the lowest slave. And I think I think this is very important to understand when we look, for example, at the Russian economy and some people are saying, okay, but the oligarchs will, will probably make a rebellion against Putin. One thing that these these observers do not understand probably is that actually in Russia there is no oligarchs, there is no big businessmen who own property because there is no right on property. Putin can decide whether you have this property or not have this property, right? And therefore, even these biggest oligarchs uh, around Putin are actually his slaves uh, are not considered as as true subject with dignity. And and I think this is very important because it shows that, uh, uh, well, Russia is is colonizing its own people, even its own citizens. You mentioned Buryats, but we can, or national minorities, but we can actually tell about, say this about every citizen. Every citizen is actually like a colonized person who doesn't have rights. Would you agree with that? I do, I do. I think it's um, absolutely tragic. Yes, I completely agree. You know, and I think the, one of the interesting questions is how long will it take to change that mentality if there is a chance to change that mentality? I mean, I don't know how, how you see Ukrainian society pre the um, end of the Soviet Union 
and whether you think that that was you know around in the era of the Soviet Union in Ukraine as well. I suspect that it wasn't as much as it was in Russia, but it's certainly because of the Cossack tradition and things like that. But I think it was certainly there amongst many parts of the population in Ukraine, and yet Ukraine has changed quite significantly. And the question for me really is, does Ukraine offer a bastion and beacon of hope that shows that maybe in 30, 50 years' time, Russia will be completely different if they are given a chance to get rid of you know, the current regime and start to embrace a different political structure. Um, I desperately hope so. But I just, you know, I don't believe that history is destiny. I certainly don't believe that biology is destiny. Um, and so I do think that, you know, Ukraine is so fascinating and so important to support and champion and highlight for so many reasons that go beyond Ukraine, in addition to the core one, which is that Ukraine is fighting for its life. Um, but yes, no, I agree. I, I also believe that uh, we are in the process of uh, the 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 values of freedom moving to the east and uh, to the east and to the south and twenty uh, first century will be a century where the the democratic or liberty movements which we witnessed in the early twenty uh, first century in Eastern Europe in in uh, in the Arabic world will actually uh, will actually go farther unfortunately this wave of, these waves of revolutions has been defeated by the new authoritarianism all all over the the neighborhood the eu neighborhood but it doesn't mean that they will not win in the future uh, the question is time how how fast will it be and when we will actually witness it and uh, this i think we should be prepared for the for a very long long fight and here comes my next question. Do you think the West is ready for this long, long battle? Because uh, in the Ukraine, in Ukraine, in the Ukrainian discourse, uh, in people on the front line, people on the front line are actually ready for a long, long battle. They, they are preparing themselves for this. And we, we might see these statements that, look, Ukraine will win this year. But actually, frankly speaking, those people who are on the front line, who who see what the war is about don't believe these things they're thinking that these are these are fairy tales and that we should rather be prepared for a very long marathon but the question is whether the free world is prepared for that what do you think well the honest answer is i don't know because a lot depends on what happens both to the economies of the free world what happens elsewhere on the geopolitical landscape and whether there are going to be too many other distractions. Um, and what also happens in terms of domestic politics and whether, say, Donald Trump ends up being the next president again or a right-wing person like Rick DeSantis. So it's hard to say that at the moment. And I think it's important to distinguish between active support and an active determination to send you know, weapons and use money to support Ukraine as opposed to simply a passive acceptance that they want Ukraine to win and they're not going to get in the way of stopping it. And I don't see a likelihood in Europe of people getting fed up with a battle to support Ukraine unless Ukraine itself does things that really antagonise its allies. Um, do I think the current level of support is going to increase? I fear probably not. I wish it would. 
Do I think it will decrease in the future in Europe? Um, it may do. Um, you, the US, I think, may also decrease its level of active support, um, particularly if a Republican gets in. But I don't see people siding with Russia in America. And so what I desperately hope is that as much support and aid and help gets in, you know, while there is still a real active interest in the combat um, and tries to build up a kitty in reserve, and the Ukrainians try to become as you know, sort of self-standing as they can, which is extremely difficult, I know, um, before there's a risk that some of the support begins to decline. I mean, there is, I would say, talking to people in the West, that in many ways there is a stronger sense of determination and a stronger recognition of the realities of what's needed than there was, you know, a year ago. Right. Uh, let's let's hope the, the support will, will continue. Uh, let me ask you as an anthropologist, because I, I really admire your approach, you know, to look at the familiar as the strange and look at the strange as as familiar so to change a little bit these concepts and uh, when you look at the western societies uh what do, do you think on on some things we need to change perspectives and when you look at these these democracies because it's it's very important for us ukrainians to to also to understand what are the trends in the western society because my impression is that there are such some concepts as freedom, for example, which are rather used as first they're taken for granted, and secondly, and if they're taken for granted, they they are not uh, experienced. They are not your personal experience, emotional experience, and this is very dangerous because they they are objectified and they are seen as commodities that you might buy and may might, may not buy, for example. And secondly, uh, I have a feeling that there is a certain, um, cer certain also erasure of, of of individual responsibility when institutions decide so much, and when you all depend, when you when people depend on 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 states, on bureaucracies, on markets, or whatever else, that also it diminishes the role of the individual freedom. Do you have this? feeling about the, the danger, the risk which is present in today's democracies? Well, I think you raise very interesting questions because, you know, Ukraine has reminded many of us in the West, and I say in the West because I live in New York, I'm often in Washington and San Francisco, but I was born originally in London. Um, but Ukraine has reminded many of us that we have become utterly complacent about the value of democracy and individual liberty in recent years. You know, Americans just kind of take it for granted. And the reality is that in America, it's, it's come under growing attack. Um, you know, the, Donald Trump unleashed all kinds of attacks against the pillars of civil society. Um, you know, others have also unleashed attacks. So the first thing about to realize is that the West has been far too complacent about democracy and freedom and losing some of it. And Ukraine should be a very powerful wake-up call about why it's worth fighting for. The second point to make is that I do think in some ways individual citizens in the West um, have lost some of their own sense of agency or their ability to change the world because there is a sense of fatalism about big politics, big money and things like that. 
Um, and, you know, the idea that, you know, ask not what your country can do for you, but what you can do for your country, to quote um, Kennedy, is something which kind of needs to be re-injected into many people in the West. Um, Richard Haas, who has been to Kiev many times and was formerly head of the, or he's still head of the Council of Foreign Relations, he steps down this summer, has written a wonderful book um, about the Ten Commandments of Being a Good Citizen, which basically argues that Americans need to start embracing their responsibilities, not just their rights, and start trying to work out what they can contribute to society to change it. And the fact he felt the need to write that book indicates that those ideas have not been dominant. But the last thing I'll say is that where there is real um, sense of agency amongst individuals in America, it's really through their smartphones and the assumption that they can customise their world around them as they want, that they can pick and mix elements of the world to choose what to consume, who to be friends with, how to define their identities, etc., etc. You know, everyone has a playlist mentality to life or a pick-and-mix mentality to life rather than just accepting other people's prefix, preset choices. So people are expressing agency around this pick-and-mix culture, um, which is both very empowering and good, but also at times very dangerous because what it also means is that people are pick-and-mixing their friends and their media sources and their identities online to become very tribal and only hanging out with people like themselves online. And out of that is coming a great sense of polarization and fragmentation in American society and American politics, which is frankly very dangerous. So the type of unity that again, the Ukrainian people have shown in the face of an enemy, um, very impressive unity, um, is something which frankly, again, the West could learn from and should learn from very fast. Maybe my last question, we, we are talking about the West, but there is uh, the whole other world. And uh, very often this this world, which is called Global South, but I, I really don't like this term. I think it's too general and too abstract. There are multiple countries, multiple cultures with very different destinies, uh, but which probably also have this history of, of colonialism. Uh, and uh, and and think of this um, of of themselves as Ukraine is thinking about itself as also countries which suffered from uh, from colonialism. What do you think Ukraine can tell these countries? Well, I was very impressed by the way that President Zelensky addressed this issue um, when I was in Kiev recently, um, and he started off, you know, in line with this Ukrainian sense of agency, not so much by blaming other people for the lack of support or the global south, or I like you, I hate that term, but rather looking to Ukraine about what it had done in the past and what it could do to change it. Um, one of the things I said earlier was that out of this passivity and this lack of agency in Russia, there also is this very strong victim mentality whereby people blame other people for what happens to them rather than looking at what they themselves can do to change it. So President Zelensky said, in his press conference on the 24th of February, you know, we need to recognize that we haven't paid enough attention to building relationships with people in places like Africa. We need to change that. We need to go out and start engaging and telling them our story more, create new embassies. Um, and he's absolutely right. And that's certainly something that Ukraine needs to do and to try and, you know, deal with, you know, non-Western countries. Because, 
if nothing else, many of those non-Western countries depend on Ukraine for their commodities and their food and things like that. Um, but also it matters in terms of political support. So I think the message that Ukrainians should be taking out is you know, we are some of the original anti-colonial um, you know, freedom fighters. We are fighting against an imperialist um, you know, force, which is called Russia. Um, you know, we are very keen to uphold principles of civil society and freedom. Um, that undoubtedly appeals to people in the global south, one would hope, not all the autocratic dictatorial leaders, but certainly many ordinary people, um, they should carry the message or tell the message that actually we show that societies and cultures can change. And if you look at the economic development in Ukraine in the last 30 years, it's been remarkable. I mean, it's gone from being a smokestack, you know, heavy industry-focused, agriculture-focused, Soviet-style economy to unleashing a tech sector, for example, which has been quite formidable and very important in the current war. Um, again, that's a message which could or should be resonating with many non-Western countries. But perhaps most importantly, the message that Ukraine has to convey is that even though Russia has presented this as a binary conflict between the West and everyone else, it does not need to be like that. Um, it's the days of binary cold wars should have been long since gone. That was the 20th century. In today's world, it's a multipolar world, and the global south, the non-Western countries, should look at what Ukraine's doing. They should look at it in terms of its own merit about whether they believe in anti-imperialist battles and freedom battles, um, and support Ukraine on those terms, and then recognise that Ukraine has a crucial role to play in their food supplies, and that they should be building ties with it rather than just trying to pretend that the war is not happening. Yes, I, I think this is very, uh, very right and interesting point. And rather than thinking about, you know, this place with the past and uh, asking what, who suffered more, uh, it's it's rather we should enter the dialogue of, of about the future and Ukraine really can show this example of, of agency, individual and collective. Gillian Tad, thanks so much for joining this podcast. It was an honor to be on the podcast and thank you for everything you're doing at a time of war to promote a culture of reflection and inquiry and curiosity on behalf of the Ukrainian nation. So I salute your work. Thank you. Thank you. This was a podcast series, Thinking in Dark Times, by Ukraine World, a website in English about Ukraine. The goal of this series is to make Ukraine and the current war a focal point of our common reflection about the world's present, past and future. We try to see light through and despite the current darkness. You can support us on patreon.com slash ukraineworld. You can support also our volunteer trips to the frontline areas at paypal, ukraine.resisting.gmail.com. Stay with us and stand with Ukraine.